Well, it's Easter Sunday, or as I like to call it, Resurrection Day. (laughs) It's the day the Christian church all over the world celebrates the most important thing that ever happened, and that is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So I thought we could talk about the resurrection today. Resurrection is uh, unusual. (laughs) That's an understatement. This is the central claim of Christianity, that Jesus died, really died, and rose from the dead, came back to life. It's the central claim of Christianity. But what does it really mean? When Christians say Jesus rose from the dead, what exactly are we claiming? Well, it's a historical claim. When Jesus was crucified, his heart stopped, his breathing stopped, his brain stopped, all of his biological functions ceased. He died. He died. And on the third day, he came back to life in the same body. Now that's kind of important. His physical body rose from the dead. All of those biological functions that had ceased began again. If you met Jesus today, You could shake his hand, and it would be safe. You could shake his hand. He has a human body. He's a man, just like me, only he's been raised from the dead, something that hasn't yet happened to me. All those biological functions that ceased began again in the same body. This is why sometimes in a church's statement of faith, you'll read, we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. The central claim of the Christian faith is that this actually happened. It's a fact that it happened one day in the real time and space, matter and energy world that we live in. Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection is not uh, spiritual or metaphysic or metaphorical, though some people teach that. The biblical Christian faith teaches that it is a fact of history, just like the life of Christ, just like the crucifixion of Christ, just like the birth of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. Uh, These are all things that took place in the history of events. Now, the second question I want to deal with this morning is, why is that important? Can't people just follow Jesus? You hear people talk about being Christ followers today without without accepting this outrageous claim, because let's admit it, Saying that Jesus physically rose from the dead is pretty outrageous. 
So can we just follow Jesus without accepting that outrageous claim? Does the resurrection really matter? Well, I would say three things in response to this question. First of all, the question itself kind of misses the point. Jesus did not come to provide moral instruction or to provide more intensive or deeper or greater moral instruction or life leadership. He didn't really come to set an example, though he certainly does set an example. Jesus perfectly obeyed the righteous law of God throughout his life. That's a pretty good example. But that wasn't his purpose for coming. He's not trying to start another religion, another set of instructions and rules about how to live so you can gain God's approval or God's reward. There's plenty of that already by the time Jesus comes. Plenty of moral instruction. In fact, the Bible says the law was given through Moses. So, it's interesting to note also, by the way, that when Jesus does teach moral instruction, he refers to the law of Moses, since it is the law of God. And so, if Jesus is the Son of God, his own law. But he didn't need to come and give new law or deeper law or even deeper insight into that law. And then, of course, you have all the moral philosophers that the world has. There's been plenty of moral instruction around for thousands of years. The Bible says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's a reference to Jesus. Jesus came as the personal revelation of God to bring grace, to bring grace, not a new and improved set of life instructions. So to skip over the resurrection and just follow Jesus' moral teaching kind of misses the point. Also, when Jesus does engage in moral instruction, it's often with the purpose of demonstrating the futility of moral instruction. When human beings engage the actual standards of God's righteousness, we universally fail. Nobody has succeeded in following moral instruction. If the standard is the standard of God's righteousness... So Jesus says, you hear this on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, it's the same thing. Now he's not saying it's just as bad, he's just saying the problem is in your heart. The problem is deeper than you think. He said, You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. He's saying, and then he says, look, if, you, if you're enraged at someone, that's the heart from which murder develops. Your problem is deeper than you think. He says, this is his introduction to that section of the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
Well, I'm here to tell you, except for Jesus, no one's righteousness has ever exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees. We don't think of them as righteous men because we've read the Gospels where they are the kind of the villain, but everyone Jesus was speaking to, when he said, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, they all said, well, then we're out of luck. Those are the most righteous people we've ever known or heard of. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of those men, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The message of Jesus in moral instruction was not, here's how you can be good. The message of Jesus was, your problem of unrighteousness is deeper than you think. It's a deeper hole than you can climb out of. Jesus pressed the law upon people so they could see it has been broken by them and there's nothing they can do to solve that problem for themselves. See, the point of Jesus is not religious moral reform. That is the point of a lot of church in the world today. That's the point of a lot of religion. But it's not the point of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to present us with a system of merit or self-atonement, or, but he came to present us with an outright gift of God's grace. He came to save us, not to show us how to save ourselves. He gives us atonement. He gives us justification, reconciliation with God, adoption into God's family, ongoing intercession on our behalf before God, the promise of our own resurrection to eternal life in the presence of his glory. He gives this. We do not get it by following his moral guidance. He gives it. And if he is not risen, he cannot give it. We simply receive it by trusting, only trusting him to give it as he promises to do. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, actually, then none of these promises can be trusted. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. If Christ has not been raised, he said, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins, then those who have died in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, this whole enterprise of church is a giant waste of time. It is all pointless, and we are fools. Paul's point is, he did in fact rise from the dead. He opens that chapter in 1 Corinthians with just that claim. To put it simply, if Jesus did not rise from the dead in the same body that died on the cross, then his claim to be the Son of God is false. In the book of Romans, we read this. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power 
by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, then he is not the Son of God. His claim to pay the penalty of our sin through his death is false. His promise to raise us from the dead is totally empty. Without the physical, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, there simply is no Christianity. The second thing I want to say about this possibility of following Jesus without trusting in the resurrection, you could try to follow Jesus' moral teachings or his great example of love, but I would suggest this. If Jesus is not the Son of God, come back to life from the dead, then no one should follow him because the level of personal commitment required is utterly unreasonable, if not evil. If Jesus is not the Son of God, then there's nothing good about his teachings. Just to give one example, Jesus said in Matthew 10, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. If Jesus is not the Son of God come back to life from the dead, then that is not good moral instruction, and no one should follow it. Imagine if I came to you and I said, Look, if you love your mother more than you love me, get out of my church. Well, you would all get out of my church. No one would find that reasonable or acceptable. Certainly not moral. The only person who can have a claim higher than the love of your family is God. And if Jesus is not the Son of God, that is far from good moral teaching that ought to be followed. Jesus simply doesn't leave space for this. I like to quote uh, from this great classic Christian book, it's C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. I just like the way Lewis puts it. He says this, Christ says that he is humble and meek, and we believe him. Not noticing that if he were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we could attribute to some of his sayings. The example I just gave. You got to love me more than your mother or get out of my house. That doesn't sound humble and meek. Unless we realize who he is. Lewis goes on, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus taught repeatedly that he would, he would rise from the dead and that he would raise people who believed in him from the dead. You can't deny the resurrection and keep the teachings of Jesus. Compared to the founders of the world's other religions, Jesus has a unique place among his followers. Muslims claim that Muhammad was the great prophet, that he heard directly from God. Buddhists claim that Buddha was a man of singular insight. To Christians, Jesus is not just a prophet or a man of great spiritual insight. We not only say that Jesus heard from God, but that Jesus actually is God. The creator who was born into our world as a man, who was crucified, who rose again. We don't just follow the teachings of Jesus. We personally trust Jesus for our eternal salvation. So the resurrection is absolutely central. Why do we believe it actually happened? Is it possible to make a determination about that, given how long ago it was? <laughs> well, let's start with that. And let's just acknowledge that when it comes to historical events, it's not possible to determine things with total certainty just by the practice of history. In other words, some exercise of faith is always involved. Understanding history requires us to rely on the accounts of other people, particularly those who experience the events. And we should also do our best to understand the motives and interests of these witnesses, because we know that things can shape and influence both their perceptions and their accounts of their perceptions. Now, one of the complaints against the claim of the resurrection is that it's not scientific. Well, that would be correct. It certainly is not. In fact, we could say it is scientifically impossible for someone to be raised from the dead. But this is not a scientific question. We would say that uh, because there have been billions of people who have lived and they all died with this one possible exception. But this isn't a scientific question, it's a historical question. We don't answer questions of history with the practice of science, but with the practice of history. We listen to the word of the witnesses and make a determination about whether it's credible. But here's the simple fact. Many people, maybe you, don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. And the reason they don't believe it is because they've pre-concluded that people cannot rise from the dead. 
that seems reasonable. Because in every case, when people die, they do not come back. Christians recognize that what we are claiming is utterly unique. It is beyond unusual. It is the fact that this unique event took place that makes it so important. The fact that it's unique in all of human history, it's only happened once. Now, I recognize that in Scripture, other people were raised from the dead, but those people were not raised the way Jesus was. They ended up dying again. But if resurrections happened all the time, well, this one would hardly be news then. One factor in the significance of the resurrection is its singularity. The question, the question is, however unlikely it seems, did it actually happen? So we need to say, who are the witnesses? Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what he said. He was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, so that's twelve witnesses now. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. That is now when Paul was writing this letter. But some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So that's a pretty good list of witnesses. It includes 500 people at least that aren't named. In the opening of the book of Acts, we read the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So Luke is a second-hand witness, but he talked to these people who to whom Jesus presented himself, made convincing proof. I think we have a story of something like that with the story of Thomas when Jesus appeared to the apostles in the upper room and he says to Thomas, here's the nail print, it's me. That was a pretty convincing proof, I think. So these witnesses, essentially the apostles and several hundred other people, what do they say? Well, that's recorded for us in the gospel record, in the letters of Paul and Peter and James. They say, oh, and let's not forget 1 John, where John says, we are eyewitnesses to these things. They say they had personal contact with Jesus after his death. That's what they say. We're not talking about dreams or visions or spiritual impressions, but the physical presence of Jesus in his body, 
that had died and came back to life. He spoke to them, ate with them, touched them. Understandably, some of them had to be convinced. They had to see it for themselves. But they were convinced. And it changed everything. Those are the witnesses. So should we believe what they say? That Jesus physically, personally rose from the dead. They might have been lying. They might have made this story up. But this explanation is difficult for a lot of reasons. First, it's hard to come up with a reasonable motivation for them to lie, especially this particular lie. Someone might say they wanted to continue the per to perpetuate the teachings of Jesus, but why would they? Peter, for example, looks like he completely disavows Jesus to go back to his previous life as a fisherman. The resurrected Jesus has to come and get him back out of his fishing boat. When Jesus was arrested, all of the disciples deserted him. They were not particularly loyal to Jesus when they thought he was dead. They were afraid. They were in hiding. They thought our movement is over and we're in trouble. Second, the perpetuation of, a, of this story involves a, a wide circle of witnesses, a few hundred people. That would be nearly impossible if they knew the story to be untrue. Have you ever tried to coordinate a lie with even one or two people? What about the Apostle Paul? Before he met the risen Christ in person, in person, he had dedicated himself completely to the eradication of Christianity. How do we account for his change from someone who did anything, anything he could to keep people from spreading the story of Jesus to someone who would go to any length to be sure everyone would hear about it? He was trying to nip it in the bud, and he went from wanting to kill this story off the face of the earth to needing everyone to know it. What happened was he met Christ, the risen Christ. Finally, all of these people, all of these people suffered intense persecution, and many of them would ultimately die for refusing to stop telling this story. All they would have to do to avoid death was stop announcing that Jesus had risen from the dead. They wouldn't, couldn't. This is a strong argument that they themselves really, really believed what they were saying. It is extremely rare for someone to die rather than to keep saying something one knows to be false. Now, they might have been crazy. Maybe they're not liars. They're clearly not liars. They clearly believe this, but maybe they're crazy. Maybe they were deluded or so caught up in the idea of a resurrection that they imagined it to be true. Some kind of mass hallucination. Remember, they saw and touched 
Christ. Again, the facts just don't support this idea. First, there's every indication in their accounts that they were disappointed by the death of Christ and surprised when he rose from the dead, even though he'd been announcing it for some time. Well, they have a hard time believing he really means it, just like you would. But so when he dies, they think, well, that's the end, I guess. And they were surprised when he rose from the dead. Just hear the testimony of Thomas here. I'll believe it when I see it. Second, the number of witnesses in the consistency of their accounts make it impossible that their experience was imaginary. There's really actually no such thing as a mass hallucination. You see, the witnesses of the resurrection were sound-minded, honest people who shared news they knew to be true because they had seen it with their own eyes. Jesus rose from the dead. If we don't believe them, these witnesses, it's not because they're not believable, it's because we've decided beforehand that something like the resurrection of the Son of God is not possible. The spread of the gospel, the growth of the church, could only happen because masses of people found the testimony of these witnesses to be compelling. You see... I don't believe because I think it's not possible. And I might be so persuaded that it's not possible that I don't even stop to review the accounts of these witnesses because if that's what they say, they can't, be, they can't be any good as witnesses. And so I dismiss the whole thing without even really seriously thinking about it. I would encourage you to seriously think about it. And there's plenty of resources for doing that if you need to do that. If you want, you can send me a message and I'd be glad to help you with that project. It's quite a big project, by the way. But what's it all boil down to? Jesus rose from the dead. That's a fact of history in the physical, material world. Jesus said this. You remember in the story of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus, comes to Martha. Martha says, yeah, I know we'll see Lazarus again in the resurrection at the end of days. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. He who dies, if, if, and even if he dies, He'll live again. There's a little paraphrasing on my part there. And then he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? That is the question. Christians believe Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, made flesh, gave his life an atonement for sin, rose from the dead, demonstrating his identity and the suitability of his sacrifice, ascended to heaven, is seated at the right hand of God, 
interceding for all of those who believe, everyone in his family, and one day will come again and share this resurrection with all of us. And you can't have any of that story if you don't have the centerpiece that Jesus rose from the dead. Do you believe it? Really, the question is not so much do you believe in those facts of history, do you think that actually occurred, but do you trust him? And I would say, if Jesus rose from the dead, he demonstrates he is utterly trustworthy. And because he rose, because Jesus in fact rose from the dead, I can, I do trust him. I can trust him for atonement. God's judgment on me has been satisfied by the death of Christ. I have forgiveness of sin. I can trust him because, of, because he rose from the dead. I can trust him for justification. God considers me righteous, giving me credit for the perfectly righteous life Jesus has lived because he rose because I'm united to him by faith. I can trust him for adoption because he rose. I can trust him for adoption. God reconciles me to himself and takes me into his family in Christ, in the risen Christ. I can trust him for access in Christ, in the risen Christ. I can talk to God as my Abba Father at any time about anything that's on my mind. I have free access to the throne of grace because Jesus rose from the dead. Because Jesus rose, I can trust him for provision. God is seeing to all of my needs with perfect knowledge and love at all times. Sometimes it doesn't look like that to me, but that is the promise. I'm his child. He never deprives me of anything good. It's the promise of Scripture. I, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Sometimes I go through suffering and I think I need something. And God's answer to me in that moment is he is risen and this is what you need. I can trust him for intercession. Jesus himself is my advocate, according to Scripture, before God the Father. And the Holy Spirit himself dwelling in me and in him and in the fellowship of all of us together. The Holy Spirit is my interpreter of prayer before God the Father, according to his own will. So whatever dumb thing I'm praying, the Spirit is praying the right thing for me. So I can just pray my dumb little head off all the time, and it's all good. And that is, in fact, the point. <laughs> because I believe, because I trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I can trust Christ for my own resurrection. God will raise me up to eternal life in glory. Here's something to notice. In all these things, atonement, justification, adoption, access, provision, intercession, resurrection, in all these things and more, 
There is nothing for me to do but to trust him to give me what he says he will give me. I don't contribute to atonement, justification. I don't adopt myself into the family of God. I don't give myself access to God. I don't provide for myself. I don't intercede for myself. I don't raise myself from the dead in the end. These are gifts of God's grace. This is why Jesus came, not to provide some you know, advanced moral teaching. It is only from this position of trusting him, only from this position that I can obey and follow him with delight and not burden by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in me by faith. The point is what he has done. What I might do is incidental and only the side effect of his grace. If I trust him, I'll learn to follow him. But the point is he died and rose again and providing, and that provides for my redemption. Trust him. Trust him. He is risen. Trust him. Father, we give you thanks. That is all we can do. Lord, you have given us everything in Christ. So we can only thank you. Lord, we take this day, this celebration of resurrection. And we celebrate. Father, we look forward to the day when our own resurrection is added to his and that great celebration to follow. Lord, you are good to us. Even when you lead us through times of stress or ignorance, we know, Lord, that you care for us because the Lord Jesus himself has risen from the dead. And in our union with him, we inherit it all. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.